Welcome back to American Billiards Radio. This is Mark Kentrell with the Legends and Champions Report. And we did a special report earlier in the week, uh, just based on the interview that we had with Luke Richards from Metrum Sports, and we thought it was time-sensitive. And then after that, um, on AZ Billiards forums, a gentleman named Joey A., he uh, asked about maybe getting some information from Europe for the snooker players and, and things like that. So I am happy to be joined with my good buddy, Mr. Jim White, who is the he's a former pro snooker player and uh, Moscone Cup commentator. You you may know him best from being the commentator and uh, face on uh, the, the production. And he's been at every Moscone Cup since the beginning of time. This is the beginning of the Moscone Cup. And so, how you doing, Jimbo? Good to have you on, buddy. Well, apart from being a little chilly up here in Canada, Mark, not too bad. <laughs> you know what you think? It's what, uh, minus 30 or something there? With the wind chill, yeah. And uh, we live in a suburb of Toronto. It's uh, minus 30 degrees centigrade. So, I don't know what that works out to in Fahrenheit, but <laughs> suffice it to say, water's freezing. Oh, man, I tell you, it's, yeah, it's, it's been uh, it's been quite cold here. It's been uh, dropped all the way down to seventy here in Arizona. So I understand what you're going through. Yeah, um, yeah, Mark, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, a question I have for you: since we spoke, that you've all, I, I just said that you've been a part of the Moscone Cup since the very beginning, the very first one when it was men and women, and there was all kinds of people playing. And I think they had a bar. Didn't they have a bar for the players on the floor at one point? Well, they actually did. They actually uh, they hired uh, a bartender, uh, one of those guys that twirls the bottles and the glasses. And he was a young fellow. And I remember them bringing him out, and they would cut to him going into commercial breaks and everything. You know, I don't ever remember seeing him drop a glass. But it was pouring drinks for the players. For pouring drinks for the players, the fans, anyone who came his way. But it, uh, it was pure entertainment. Wow. Well, based on you seeing everything up close and personal, do you have a memorable moment? And, and I'm, I'm sorry to, to some of the listeners. This My show's starting to become the Moscone Cup show, and it's not intended. It just seems like sometimes things are relevant. But uh, is, there a, is there a moment that you remember, Jimbo, that's uh, – the most memorable moment to you? Oh, there's been so many. Um, certainly, uh, you know, in the early days when it was uh, it was all American domination, and I'm talking when uh, Jeanette Lee and Vivian Villarreal were part of the team, and a lady named Francesca Stark from Germany, and uh, Alison Fisher was on Team Europe. Uh, I mean, any time that uh, Team USA needed a point, all I had to do was put the women in, and uh, the European women had no chance against the American women. I even remember Barry Hearn ducking into the commentary box, and I said that to him. His words, it was like throwing lambs to the slaughter. And uh, that's just how it was. I mean, the, the, the Europeans really had no chance. But, really? And, and, Allison, and Allison was playing for Team Europe at that point. Allison was playing for Team Europe at that point, and uh, I went on record as saying she'd never be a good pool player. How'd they do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but well, you know something, Mark, coming from a snooker background, uh, probably one of my fondest memories, and uh, 
and working with my uh, my my very good friend, the late Sid Waddell. Um, we were doing a match with uh, Jimmy White and Alex Higgins playing for Team Europe, and Jimmy White ended up making the last nine ball, and Alex came around the table and kissed him. And uh, and obviously Alex Higgins has passed on now, and uh, and Jimmy is still around doing a little snooker commentary, I understand, in the U.K., but at that time, I was still playing snooker, so these were, were two guys that I used to practice with Alex all the time. And uh, I've gone shopping a few times with Jimmy when we were in Europe at the, the European Open. And so the, the snooker players, the, you know, we did chum around an awful lot. But uh, seeing those two guys playing pool, that's just something I'll never, ever forget. You used to practice with Alex Higgins. Alex had a snooker table in his home when he lived in Presbury, just outside Manchester, and he threw me the keys to his car. He had got banned for driving, and he said, if you come and practice with me, you can drive my car. So I needed a car at the time. I was I was handcuffed. I, I went up and practiced with him every day. That's got to be an experience right there. You know something, Alex, a lot of people, they, they talk about, you know, the – the Alex Higgins who's had a few drinks and you know, he might throw a cue at a wall or at somebody's head. But I'll tell you something, Mark, if you kept Alex sober, he had a heart as big as all outdoors. He had a, a tailor in Ireland and he was a very famous tailor. And Alex was the same size as me. And I remember him taking me upstairs in his house and it was a beautiful house. And uh, the closet was the length of the wall and it was full of tailor-made suits. And he just said, "Jimmy, help yourself. You know, whatever uh, whatever suits you like, go ahead, take one. Uh, you know, take as many as you like. They're yours." And and that's kind of the Alex Higgins I remember. Yeah, I just can't imagine being on my own. Well, you know, it's the same, a little bit the same with uh, my experiences with Earl Strickland. You know, Earl Strickland. You know, there's somewhat of a similarity. You know, between Alex Higgins and uh, Earl Strickland. Not yeah. the not the drinking part necessarily, just the you know erratic behavior sometimes. And but you know you get on your own with Earl, and he's an absolute sweetheart of a fella to yeah. be around. So yeah. a lot of people don't know these things, and uh, that's that's good to know about Alex, though. And and you know something, both of them highly intelligent. You get into conversations; they they can almost converse on any level about a variety of different subjects. I mean, they were geniuses on their respective tables. But off the table, as long as you, uh, you know, you had their focus and their attention, they could hold a conversation. Right. Uh, well, if that's uh, that's good. It's good. It's good information. I know a lot of people, uh, pool fans here in America, know of Alex Higgins and you know some of his antics, and and he's pretty popular. He's one of the most popular. Uh, snooker players, I think, among American pool and billiard fans. Um, obviously, along with Ronnie O'Sullivan, he seems like he's turned into the, uh, the the next big fan favorite for the United States. Yeah, well, Alex was definitely the crowd favorite. I even remember playing a match. Um, it was in Stoke-on-Trent, a place called Trentham Gardens. And uh, I had just got beat, and I'd, I'd lost to Jimmy. And um, walking out, and I remember saying to one of the ushers on my way out, heading back to my car, I says, man, was that place ever packed? And uh, the lady usher said to me, she said, you think it was busy tonight? The hurricane's playing. Believe me, we see the crowd that comes in here later on. 
and that was obviously Alex Higgins. So they didn't have enough seats when he played. Right. Um, I'm going to go over something I've been over with uh, Luke in the, the last interview, which is nice to get different perspectives. Uh, obviously, you're connected with Metro Sports and Sky Sports, and you already know that Mark Wilson's been uh, announced as captain of Team USA. And I just want to know what your opinion is of the pick and what kind of fellow Mark Wilson is. Well, I, I know Mark pretty well. And um, believe it or not, a couple of years ago, I, I think I might even have thrown his name in the fire to uh, to try and see whether they would consider using him. Um, I, I think that Mark is a fantastic coach. Uh, I, I think that what Team USA needs is someone who can bond all these players together, someone who can get into each one of their heads and be as much of a psychologist as a coach. Um, as you know, Mark, having followed the Moscone Cup for a number of years as well, it's not necessarily about how well they play as individuals. It's how they meld as a team. And that's where Europe, uh, with the European Tour, you see these guys, they're eating and drinking together, even when they're playing in these events as individuals. And um, this, is, this yeah. is something the Americans can learn from. And I know one thing that, that Mark Wilson is giving a lot of free reign on right now. He's got a lot of time to put this together. No other captain has been announced this early. And, and Mark has, well, he's got well over 10 months to think about a plan of attack, start thinking about the players that he wants to represent the USA, and, uh, and, and you know, put them into, into practice scenarios to see what players work with other players and how the mentalities can gel because that's the biggest thing is you with pool players, and it doesn't matter whether they are European or American or you know, whether they're Asian. I mean, pool players, snooker players, all of us, we tend to have very fragile egos. And it's a delicate balance that you've got to try and, uh, and, and work within. And um, this is going to be the biggest hurdle for Mark, is, is trying to find that delicate balance and find players that are, are willing to go to the wall for their partners and, and for their teammates, win or lose. Because in the Moscone Cup, over the last number of years, the Europeans have all been there front and center. They win as a team, they lose as a team. A lot of times you look out in the crowd and not all the American players are there. So um, this is this is something, though. The one thing that, that Mark Wilson does bring to the table is he's fresh. And I'll tell you something a lot of people may not know. I remember Mark Wilson hitting the last ball in the Moscone Cup in the early days, too. So he's got experience there as a player. He's going to have a real good understanding of what it takes to uh, at least get the Americans competitive again. And I think he's willing to take it one step at a time. He's he's not looking to go over to Blackpool in uh, December this year and, and win the Moscone Cup back. First and foremost, they've got to get competitive again because it, it really has been one-way traffic, and it's all going to Team Europe right now. So that's that's first and foremost. They've got to they've got to let the Europeans know that they're going to be in for a fight. Do, do you do you think that the in my opinion, I've, I've thought about this a few. Uh, a little while now. Do you think that the team unity is the answer? And the reason I ask that is because obviously you've got to have your chances and there's got to have the roles going for you sometimes and you've got to be focused. But each of these players, and it's, 
he's not going to pick, Mark Wilson's not going to pick a bunch of amateurs, right? So these people can actually beat any other player on any given day. Once you get to a certain level, I believe that you can just be, it's kind of who's on form, who's focused that day, and, and those kind of things. So given the fact that, in my opinion, each any player can be any other player on any other given day, that only leads me to believe that the only missing factor is the team unity. Am I off on that, or what's your, uh, you know, what's your opinion? Well, well, you know something, there's an awful lot of talent. When the Moscone Cup comes around, you've got as much talent on that pool table as you're ever going to see. And um, as far as I'm concerned, the only difference is how these guys act off the table. Um, you know, the, the Europeans, you go into the European dressing room, you've got all the banners on the wall, all the motivational sayings, the team pictures, everything is there. And you go into the American dressing room, and the walls are bare. There's really nothing there that, that I've seen, you know, past or present that these guys can really look at and, and dig down for that, that pride, you know, that uh, every one of them, you know, nobody likes to lose. These guys hate losing. But it's, I think it's more a fear of losing than a will to want to win. And I, I think that's what Mark Wilson is facing right now. He's got to try and, you know, stress the positives, turn everything into a, a will to win as opposed to a fear of losing. And, um, you know, something Mark's in a real tough spot. He's talked about having a youth movement, and which I think is, is probably a very good idea. But I still think he needs that mix of experience in there. And, Mark, you talk about unity. I mean, the Moscone Cup is all about unity. You've got so much talent there that as individuals, it, it's, it's a different ball game. And yet for one team to go out there and completely dominate as the Europeans did in Vegas this year, there was no explanation for that. And, um, I mean, a lot of people really thought that this was going to be as competitive a year for the Americans as, as has been in the last few. Well, how wrong were they? And, and I was one of those. I really did think the Americans were going to be a lot more competitive this year. I just, I underestimated the Europeans. I won't do it again. And believe me, the Americans have a very uphill battle in Blackpool. Because the crowd there, it's going to be three times the size of what they've seen in Vegas, and they are going to be as pro-Europe as any you're going to you're going to see in recent times. So hey, you talk well, about going into into enemy waters. I know, and and the thing is, and again, as was brought up in the chat head with Luke, the the ticket sales. We don't know who the teams are. We don't know who the teams are, and they sold 40% of seats in an hour without knowing who the teams are. Well, thank God they didn't put them all on sale. They might all have gone right away. I know. I'm trying to get some comp tickets. I've got to hit you up. I've got to hit Luke up. I've got to get hold of Barry Hearn. <laughs> see yeah, if I can Mark, give us... Blackpool is, is it's the nature of the city, too. I mean, for, for Matchroom to take this event to Blackpool, a stroke of genius. And, and again, you know, to have nominated Mark Wilson as the, the captain for Team USA this year, and, and I, I said this to Luke, I think it's a fantastic move on their part because they're, they've got people talking about the 2014 Moscone Cup, and we're still in the first month of 2014. <laughs>
I know, I know. It's uh, it's really astounding, really. And I think I know that last year, with the 20th anniversary and what they wanted to do, I believe for whatever reason, and coming after that devastating crushing that Team USA got, I'm amazed. It seems like this 2014 already has more traction than the 20th anniversary did when there was all these surprises in store and you got Earl coming back and things like that. It seems like this has got more traction already, and we're not even close to it. Yeah, just imagine how big it's going to be then. It's almost like they give you two weeks to lead up to Super Bowl for all the hype and build-up. Well, we've only got 11 months for the very same thing to happen for the Moscone Cup. It's uh, This is going to be one you definitely won't want to miss. Right, and we had a, um, a conversation about uh, earlier about Blackpool, and we both have a lot of experience uh, with Blackpool and uh, – you know, I'm not trying to turn this into another uh, show where I hop on about how great the place is, but I, I think that the Europe, the American fans who decide to travel, if they can, if that's if they can get tickets, the European fans who say the American fans who decide to travel are going to have a real experience that they probably they will never forget as long as they live because. An American in general says, oh, I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to go to England. And they go to London, and maybe they'll go to Ireland. But they don't know about Blackpool, necessarily. (laughs) Well, Blackpool, and and I had mentioned this, I think it's like the Las Vegas in England. It's it's got all the pomp and... uh, and all the you know the passion from a you know from a seaside town, it, it's right on the coast. Uh, it's it's you know gets that wind coming off the water. You've got the Blackpool illuminations at night. It really is a holiday area. It might not seem that way now, but I mean for years and years it it was the place to go in the north of England. And for our American fans that are thinking about it, don't book your flight into London if you're thinking of going to Blackpool. Book it to Manchester. Because if you book your flight into Manchester, you're about an hour train ride into Blackpool. So, yeah, um, and and that's and that on its own is a treat because if you you know the English countryside is beautiful, and that, oh, you get to take that train through the through the Pennine Mountains and through the English countryside, and then you hit Blackpool. I mean, people would probably go on vacation to England and take a train ride just to see the countryside. And yeah, this is part, can, part of the deal. Yeah, and you can set your watch by the trains there, too. I mean, they really are uh, are extremely precise as to, uh, you know, when they're in and out of their stations. But it's, um, I mean, Blackpool is going to be a treat. It's, it's a fantastic place to take the Moscone Cup. I, I've got so many memories from Blackpool having played in so many of the qualifiers when I was still playing snooker in the 80s and 90s. We played all our qualifiers in Blackpool, and I can't tell you how many times I've walked up and down the prom in Blackpool and when the wind's been freezing and I've either won or lost a match, and I'm walking down there with my cue and my teeth are chattering and I can't wait to get where I'm at least warm again. So if nothing else, Mark, when I think about that now, and I'm I'm letting the dog in as we speak, and our, our dog is a shadow. Our dog's not too uh, too bright. I guess doesn't mind the cold. That fur jacket must help. 
But um, you, yeah. you, dug, you dug. Hold on a second. Your dog is not too bright, but you live there. Oh yeah, yeah the dog, you choose. Yeah, you chose to live there. Oh, All right, I'm, in, I'm inside. Uh, the dog's outside. <laughs> well, you know, if you're talking about that cold air in Blackpool and and and, and that kind of thing. If you were to go to Blackpool right now with that cold air, based on where you are right now, you'd probably put on some shorts. Yeah, I'll tell you what. It'd probably feel warm. Nothing. This is the coldest I remember it in Canada in 25 years that we've lived in the Toronto area. But, uh, boy, I'll, I'll never forget that cold wind coming off the off the Irish Sea, walking down the prom in Blackpool, though. And I even mentioned it to Barry when we were in Vegas. I said, Blackpool... Blackpool in December. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, based on uh, you know the um, posts that I received on uh, AZ Billy's forums, uh, let me switch out of Moscone Cup mode and ask you: You, how long were you playing professional snooker? Uh, from 1980 <laughs> through the 96-97 season, so 17 years. The golden years. The golden years, yes. And that's how I prefer it. You know, you had Steve Davis, you had Cliff Thorburn, your uh, fellow countryman there, and Bill Werbenuck. Bill, Bill, Bill Werbenuck used to drink like 17 pints of lager during his ministry. Mark, they used to have to put his table as close to the washroom as they could possibly get it. He was the only player I've ever seen that they would stop a frame in the middle of it and allow him to go to the washroom. <laughs> 17 pints, 17 pints of lager before the match started. That's, and now what people have to remember is this guy, was a, he was a top professional player. And he, 17 pints, and the alcohol level in the beer in Europe, I believe, is much higher. And so it might be the equivalent of drinking 30 beers. Yeah, o- yeah. Over, over what? Uh, uh, well, about a three or 17? four hour period. Yeah, but over over the the duration of the match and, and leading up to it. But the thing about Bill and and I'm, anytime I've ever gone back to the UK, because a lot of people may not know that I, I commentated professional snooker for seven or eight years before they transitioned me over onto uh, onto pool, and. Um, you know, I would when I'd go over and uh, hop into a taxi at the airport. More people asked me about Bill Werbenuck than any other player, certainly than any other Canadian. And, really? Um, oh, and, and I mean, what really made Bill famous was that he he tried to declare his beer expenses, the, the money that he would spend on lager. He tried to <laughs> declare it as a tax write-off because <laughs> because he wanted to say there was a nerve in the back of his neck that only alcohol could steady when he played. <laughs> and and everybody, I mean, it was front page news. And and he never did get away with it, but what a try. Oh, my goodness. That, that's hysterical right now. Well, your, your, your other Canadian uh, superstar was uh, in snooker was Cliff Thorburn, who, uh, you know, he plays a lot of snooker and pool in Canada still to this day, I guess. And uh, he had that 147 uh, break that was televised. And Bill Werbenick was on uh, that. He came around to congratulate him. Um, yeah. But, my oh, my mom, she used to fancy um, Cliff Thorburn 
<laughs> Cliff, and I've known Cliff longer than any other professional player. Um, we we both grew up in Western Canada, and um, I mean he was he was the leader of the pack, wasn't he, for the Canadians? I mean he, we all followed suit. But um, I still talk to Cliff. There aren't many weeks go by we don't if we're not firing jokes back and forth, you know, via email. You know, we'll we'll speak to each other. But he's still, I mean, he's 66. He just turned 66. I don't know whether he'd be thrilled about me letting everybody know that. And he can still play snooker, and to a pretty decent standard. He goes back and forth uh, over to the U.K. for the uh, the seniors tour, the legends tour over there. And uh, Steve Davis is playing in that and a number of the, the old great players. But, um, gosh, Cliff, if, if I would have had half, the dedication to play snooker that Cliff had, and and you know how strong his mind was, you know, I I probably would have been a lot more successful. He's, I mean, he was my idol. He was my idol growing up playing the game, and he's still my idol now. He's 66, and I think he's still going. Well, I, he's going to be he around your, for a long time. He was your idol growing up. Aren't you guys about the same age? Are you are you older than No, no, I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I, 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 Mark, I don't want to tell anyone how old I am, but I'm not as old as Cliff. <laughs> uh so having you know, we I've I've talked before on, on this show about the state of, of pool and we know it's on the decline and I, I always say the same thing, I don't want to be negative. But, you know, it's a fact. It's out there. Um, and I saw snooker in the early 80s and end of the 90s when it just turned into the – if you were a professional snooker player, you were making a very good living if you got – you know, if you were in at that point. Um, and what's the difference, do you think, uh, between how snooker – came from, let's say, Pop Black, which Pop Black, for those of you who don't know, was a show that was on late at night in the United Kingdom. And there was one uh, one frame, one rack. That was the whole show, one rack of two players playing against each other for the Pop Black title. And when it went from that all the way to, you know, it being so big in Sheffield, Steve Davis, and all these other uh, things that have gone on since then, what was what's the difference between pool and snooker? What is there is there a, a formula? Do you think, Jimmy, that we people could follow to make it? Well, you know something, the snooker kind of followed suit with golf. I mean, all the players and, and the executive administrations that oversaw the game all bought into the same philosophy. They promoted the sport and they let the sport they let the sport come back and promote them. And um, snooker was like that. I mean, uh, every year when, at the start of the year, we would sign contracts that we had to participate in every tour event. And um, we'd also sign a, an agreement that if at any time we were seen to be bringing the game into disrepute, that we would face disciplinary action. So, I mean, we were we were treated as, as professional athletes. And... Um, and that's the way we were seen. But you have to remember, too, Mark, that when, when snooker really took off, you know, and that was in the, the early 80s in the U.K., and, and there were only, you know, there were four TV stations. So a lot of people were kind of handcuffed as to what they could and couldn't watch. 
Right. You know, to try and, and, you know, get pool on television now, I mean, you still have a few hundred stations. You can tune into a movie or whatever you want to watch. Back then, in, in the early days in England, it's, uh, you know, you had four channels. So Snooker basically created that, that foothold that it never, ever relinquished to this day. And then it, it had a lot of characters. I mean, you talk about Bill Werbenuck and the Alex Higgins as Jim Whites and Cliff Thorburns and, and, and all these great players. Ray Reed was going back. Ray Reed and even Ray the old Ray John Spencer, of, of course. But, but these guys, so many people could relate to these, to these guys. And, and they all accrued huge followings. I mean, we all had fan clubs over there. And, um, and you know, people willing to look after our fan club and, and, you know, for nothing more than just to be able to have a T-shirt with our name on it and sit in the front row when we played. And, and all of us have it. So, right. it's, I mean, we used to walk down the street. And, and I mean, I'd stop in the, the last, I guess the last real good run I had in a tournament over there. I got beat by Jimmy White in 1992 in the quarterfinals of the World Professional Championship. Well, I stopped at a grocery store on my way home. I had just beat Willie Thorne in the last 16. And I, I stopped at a grocery store to pick up some milk and bread on the way home. I was in that grocery store for an hour and a half signing autographs. Wow. So it's it's just the, the whole, you know, the, the way the game is seen over there, it's, 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 it's respected. I mean, the, you know, the, they're seen as, as athletes and, and not pool players and, I mean, that stigma that, you know, in, in North America, and, and I went through this even though I played snooker. I came from Canada, and, you know, it was embarrassing to tell people that I played snooker. No one really knew what it was. It was all pool. And uh, the, the rule of thumb was, you know, if you were any good at pool, well, that was a sign of a misspent youth. Well, not so much in England. In, right. in, England, in England, they had what was called the YTS, a youth training scheme. And the government, if you wanted to leave school early, the government paid you if you wanted to play snooker. Right. I now, remember that. Yeah. And, and, Mark, imagine imagine how many young kids are turning on the TV and they're seeing the likes of Jimmy White and, and Steve Davis and, you know, making, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of pounds playing a game. That these kids are all playing just for the love of the game. And now they have the opportunity to go train and, and put in a certain amount of, of hours playing snooker at a local club every week, and if they get endorsed by that club, the government's paying them to practice. Right. And they're young amateurs. So it's, it's pretty hard for the game not to grow in, in respectability and, and to breed champions when you've got that sort of foundation to, uh, to build on. Right. You mentioned uh, Willie Thorne there, and... Uh, uh, it's, uh, a lot of people knew him as Mr. One Four Seven. He had uh, supposedly had more One Four Seven breaks than anybody else. And um, I remember going to his uh, playing in a tournament at his club in Leicester. Uh, I think it was called the One Four Seven Club, actually. That's right. That's right. And uh, his mom—I don't know if she's still alive—but I tell you what, God bless her. She worked the snooker club for him. And me and there was a couple of us who took the bus down from Bradford to Leicester and um, went to play in this tournament. And we were sat there. We were on a shoestring budget. I mean, we barely made it. You know, we were drinking water. We couldn't afford to do anything. And this little old lady came up and turns out it was Willie Thorne's mom. 
And she yeah. said, do you, do, you, do you boys want something to eat? Because we were 16, 17 at the time. And we said, no, we, sorry, we, we, yeah, we, we, we can't afford it. We cost us everything to just get here and pay our entry fee. And uh, we, we really can't afford anything right now. Sorry. Well, yeah. little, little, it wasn't even 10 minutes late. She came out with a big plate of cheese sandwiches for us. It's an ego. I'm not going to sit there and watch you. Let's be hungry. You, you need your food. Yeah. And it, it was a sweetheart of a lady she was. She loved the sport. I mean, she was so proud of Willie. And uh, I've I got to be honest with you, I don't know if she's still with us. I know that Willie's brother has recently passed on, but uh, his, his mom, if, if Willie's mom is still alive, she's got to be you know well into her 80s now, I'm sure. But um, God, what a lady she was. And yeah, she ran that club in Leicester, like long hours, all day long she was there. Well, she had to run it because Willie was too busy making one four sevens on the snooker table. Yeah, yeah. And she was getting on a bit, you know, she was getting older when, uh, you know, when I was there. So I talked to uh, Karen Kaur, uh not too long ago about her. And uh, she had, you know, I think at one point anybody who had any enthusiasm, serious enthusiasm about snooker went through Willie Thorne's place at some point. So. Yeah. yeah, very true, very true. So the, the the thing is with snooker, it's, it's really about building the um, versus pool. Is as I've been saying, uh, organization. You've got to gather it from the grassroots, Mark. And at the end of the day, money makes everything go round. You know, there has to be a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, and, and we've got to be able to dangle that career opportunity and, and a, a very lucrative career opportunity to people that would consider playing pool and, and playing it, you know, for a living. So it's it's got to be, I mean, what do they say? Money is life's report card. You know, if, if, if it's worth it to play snooker or if it's worth it to play pool and you can earn a good living doing something you might do even if you weren't making money at it, you don't think there would be a long lineup? Yeah, yep. It's, uh, and, and it, it starts with, Coaching, which is something else that was brought up to me on this AZ Billiards uh, forum, uh, the coaching of the youth or coaching of in, in general. I know there's uh, there was a gentleman who I wanted to go and take lessons with when I was trying to, you know, be a snooker player. His name was Frank Callum. I know him very well. And uh, he was the man. I just yes, couldn't afford him. I think it's like a hundred a hundred pounds an hour or something at the time, and that's in the eighties. It was very very expensive to take lessons from him if you could get the time with him. Uh, and, I, I, I can give you some great stories about Frank, but uh, he was ever present at uh, at any of the world ranking events, and I mean he was so revered as a snooker coach that um, Ian Doyle, who was Stephen Hendry's manager at the time and managed other great players like Ken Dougherty and, uh, and a number of – Mike Hallett was with him and a number of, of top players. I think even John Higgins signed with him at one point. But he ended up giving Frank Callan an exclusive uh, contract that he could only coach his stable of players and none other. So, um, I mean, he, he effectively, Mark, what he did is he locked Frank Callan up so that he wasn't available to any other players other than the ones he was managing. So that's how much Frank Callan was revered. But I can tell you the players that can credit Frank Callan for their games, uh, players like Karen Kaur, Allison Fisher, Steve Davis, 
Terry Griffiths, Doug Mountjoy, some you know names that our, our uh, fans in, in America may not recognize. Well, some of them they certainly will. But all of these, all of these great snooker players, some of them went on to pool careers. You know, can all credit Frank Callan for becoming the players that they were and are. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it seems now I don't know about his actual playing ability. I know that I didn't necessarily see him at the Crucible at the uh, World Championships or anything like on the UK or Coral or any of those uh, majors. Uh, no, he was, he, was, he was a decent amateur player. Um, I mean, he grew up in the, uh, in the Lytham St. Anne's area where, for any of our golf fans, Royal Lytham, where they play the British Open. That's right in Frank's backyard. So, and, um, and, right, and just well, a few miles down the road from Blackpool. There you go. And, and, I mean, that's where all the qualifiers were with, with the snooker in Blackpool when I played. But um, Frank was a decent amateur player. And, and, again, you know, not my era. But I remember seeing photos of he and Joe Davis and Fred Davis. So, I mean, if he was hanging around those players, those are the all-time greats of, uh, of you know, bygone era playing snooker. And uh, if Frank was matching wits with them, he must have played to a pretty decent standard. Must, yeah, must have been, our, uh, you know, like you say, a, a decent player. So that brings up, you know, the uh, argument that, that many people have is you don't have to be a great player to be a great coach. No, absolutely not. I, I mean, it's it's how you communicate and, and how you can relate to people so that you can put it into layman's terms and, and you can you might be able to see aspects of the game or, or understand the finer points of whether it's delivering a pool cue or delivering a snooker cue that makes sense and that people can, can understand. Just because you're a great player does not mean you're, you're going to be a good coach. So, um, I mean, even in golf, you know, I, I, I know like players, uh, you know, a lot of players will will talk about maybe David Ledbetter or even the fellow that coached Tiger Woods. And, and I know these guys were probably very good golfers, but I don't know if any of them actually played on the pro tour. So right. it's, um, it, it, it does, without a doubt, and I'm, I'm a big advocate of that. I mean, communication is, is the biggest thing when it comes to, you know, being able to teach. You really is have it, to be able to speak in terms that people understand. Is, is there a difference, you think, between teaching snooker and teaching pool? Obviously, there are obvious differences. You know, you're not playing all around the table at any given time, you mainly focused around the red and the black for the most part. Well, yeah. yeah, and and I mean, snooker is, you rarely leave the center of the cue ball on the snooker table. Um, you're playing with different equipment, uh, you know, smaller tips, smaller balls, smaller pockets, and, and a larger, larger playing surface. And uh, given the cloth that they're playing on on a snooker table, there's a nap on that cloth. If you mishit the cue ball even slightly, it's really magnified on the snooker table. But in in pool, um, I, I think it's it's not quite as demanding from a fundamental standpoint. But I think in pool you have to be mentally tougher. I think you have to fade things in in the pool world that you know you you might see something happen in one day at a pool tournament. Mark, you might not see in ten years of watching snooker. And you right. have to be very mentally tough to be able to, to move past that. So where it may not be as fundamentally demanding, and, and that's not to take take anything away. I mean, and some people might 
have a different opinion. But I think from a psychological standpoint, I think you've got to be ultra strong to play pool. Right. What I'd like to ask you next is, you t- you told me earlier about your uh, you've got a new venture going up there in Canada. You got uh, you're going to be opening a pool room or a, a venue of some kind. Mark, we are. I'm uh, I'm in the the middle stages of uh, of opening a real nice. Uh, it's going to be a, a billiard room, obviously, but it's going to be a sports bar as well. And we have uh, named it the Corner Bank. So it's going to be the Corner Bank Sports Bar and Grill. It's it's going to be in Toronto, and and it's going to be a real nice facility. We're going to have about 28 to 30 diamond pool tables. Wow. And eight professional snooker tables. Hold on a second. 28 to 30 pool tables. Now, those nine-foot or bar tables? Both. There's going to be uh, 14 nine-footers and 14, 16 or 14. We're we're not quite sure whether we're going to have a couple. We're going to have an outdoor patio as well, but there will either be 14 or 16 seven-footers. But we're going to have a couple that are going to be, you know, situated on the patio. We're going to have a 3,000-square-foot patio. And um, the best part about this club is it's right across the street from a college with 18,000 oh. students. <laughs> well, I've got a feeling you're going to make some money in that place. Do you know what, Mark? It's it's going to be fun because, obviously, with with us being across from the college – we're hoping to generate a very new and, and you know vibrant clientele. It's a very high traffic area. About thirty to thirty-five thousand vehicles go by our front door every day. Wow. So you know we we tr- want to try and, and you know put it back on the radar in the city. Um, I've been speaking with some television people up here, and ideally we've got some space in the back that would be tailor-made for a, an in-house studio as well. But I mean, we've got an awful lot in the works, a lot of plans, and we're hoping that some of them will uh, will come into fruition. And you know, it's going to it's going to keep myself and uh, my partner John White very very busy. Are you uh, going to have food? Hopefully, very good food. I mean, I've I've had a couple friends tell me that you know, for this to be successful and and to do well across the street from a college, we've got to offer one of the best burgers in the city. And there's some very good burger places in Toronto, believe me. So for us to have that moniker, we're we're going to have to be good. Right. It's, uh, I've seen some pool rooms, uh, you know, my travels, and come lunchtime, the place is packed with people from local businesses, schools, whatever it might be. And they don't care about it. This is a pool room. They don't give one crap about pool. But they do give a crap about the lobster beast that they do, and their great burgers, and, and the food in general. And people would come there just for the food, which, you know, is always going to be a bonus when you're having a tournament or anything going on, that players don't have to leave and go do something else, you know, and, and find a McDonald's if they can just eat there at a reasonable price and get a great, you know, meal. Well, you know, some I, I I'm one of those people that I believe food is a very integral part of a successful billiard room, because as you just said, I don't want them leaving. I want them to come in. I want them to park there all day, and the fact right. that I'm going to put diamond pool tables in and Shender snooker tables, which are are the table that's used in the International Billiards and Snooker Federation Championships, they're the tables that were used in the recently played World Games. 
So they're they're professional standard snooker tables, and you wouldn't be putting all this this high end product in there if you didn't think, want to cater to the players as well. Right? Are you gonna have the? You know, we talked. We I know we've had conversations before about the felt on the tables. How yeah. easy is it to get real snooker felt? Um. Well, when you know something, Mark, I've got some pretty good connections from my days playing. And uh, I've been going through the World Snooker Association, and I'm bringing over some match cloth, match number 10 cloth that's going to go on the snooker tables. So um, they're going to play just like they do. Just if you ever watch any of the snooker on the on the computer, or if you're fortunate enough to be able to get it on TV, our tables are going to play just what you see on TV. It's, they're going to be professional standard tables that are going to have a, an atmosphere and a feel much like playing in the pro game. Well, that's awesome. I, I I wish you all the best of luck. I don't think you're going to need too much of it because you can have a you know you can know what you're doing, and uh, with a good facility, good food, good atmosphere, I, I think you're going to do real well, well up there. Maybe, maybe maybe if I come up there, maybe I can get comped to a little bit of food or something. You know, <laughs> you know, you'll get a beer and a burger on us. Uh, that's it, right? That's it as well. That'll be it, knowing you. <laughs> no, no, I'm the loose one. My partner is the one who throws nickels around like manhole covers. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going to close this up, but I do have one thing I'd like to try with you, if you don't mind. I want to no. use you as a, as a guinea pig. What my idea is is this. We, you know, we'd like to get... Uh, you know the the listeners of this show and American Billiard Radio in general to know a little bit more about the industry people, people who are involved, highly involved in in the game and the players. And it was brought to me because I think it's it's been on other shows uh, on TV. It's like a quick fire uh, question and answer, and it's just all it's aimed to do is give us a little bit more insight into. Jimmy White, Schwen, we listen to you on Moscone Carpo. We watch you stood there, you know, doing your thing, trying to look pretty. How much makeup do you have to put on, by the way, to make you look good on that? <laughs> they, they, they spray it on me. It could take them a couple of hours just to get the... <laughs> yeah, they, they spray it on. They just get out there. It looks like a... An ex, like a, a uh, something you put out with a fire, you know, a fire extinguisher. They just yeah. spray it on. <laughs> Well, so I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you these questions. Answer them as fast as you can. Some of them are going to take a little bit longer. And, uh, again, this is something I hope to do with all the uh, future guests I have on this show. But you're easy picking, so I'm going to start with you. Are you ready? Go for it. What's your favorite pastime? Golf. What's your favorite drink? Red wine. Your all-time favorite song? Uh, Desperado. Your all-time favorite band or singer? Uh, Phil Collins. And I can't remember the group he played with. Genesis. There you go, Genesis. Thank you. (laughs) Favorite restaurant? Uh, Any good steakhouse. What would your last meal be? Good steak. Boxers or briefs? Uh, briefs. Cats or dogs? Both. We have one of each. Along with a guinea pig and a parakeet. 
What's your favorite movie? The Sting. Who's your favorite actor? Paul Newman. Mickelson or Tiger? So Mickelson or Tiger? Ooh, I gotta say Tiger. Sorry. If you were to go one place on vacation, where would it be? Hawaii. What's your favorite TV show? Suits. You ever heard what? of what? What's he it's called? Suits. Well, that must be a Canadian, eh? Well, I think it's on HBO. Shoots? Scoots? Suit. No, suits. Like uh, S-U-I-T-S. Suits. Okay, no, I don't know that one. Um, what's your favorite close, car? Very, very close second blacklist. You've probably heard of the blacklist. I've, I have recently. Ah, uh, okay. Very close second. Favorite car. Favorite color. Green. No, favorite car. Car. Sorry, favorite car. Uh, well, I drive a Honda Civic, so I better say that. <laughs> well, I tell you, this is the last one. If you could swap places with anyone for one day, and it can't be me, Jim, okay? If anybody for one day, who would it be? Ooh, if I could swap places with anyone for one day. I'm repeating can't, it. Can't, I'm trying to find myself. Be, can't be me. Can't be me. Can't be you, okay? I'm going to say Ronnie O'Sullivan. Very good. That sounds good to me, man. And I appreciate you spending the time and uh, giving us some insight. And it's been enjoyable chatting with you again. Uh, Mark, always good talking to you. It's, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's nice to uh, to learn a little bit about some of the people in the industry. And, and I think with what you're doing here, a lot of us out there, including myself, we're going to get a little insight into a lot of people that we didn't know before. And I think I that's fun. I know it could be good or bad, right? Exactly, but it's all it's all in good fun. <laughs> I appreciate it, Jim. I and uh hopefully I can do this again with you in the near future. Mark, anytime. I'm a phone call away and uh, if I'm ever around you know you've got that burger and beer. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jim. I will speak to you later. And that is it for right now on American Billiard Radio, the Legends and Champions Report with myself, Mark Cantrell. We'll see you next time.